0: I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. We are so honored and delighted to have you joining us today for the discussion on F1 status and employment options for students. Joining me on today's panel are my two esteemed and brilliant colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm, Anna Stepanova and Joanna Gavigan, both of whom are very knowledgeable about this. In fact, they had recently been invited to speak to the American Immigration Lawyers Association to mentor attorneys on F1 student issues, employment issues, status issues, and that was an even longer conversation, but this is a fairly complex uh, topic with a lot of nuances. We're going to hit upon the highlights that are of particular interest both to employers and employees, students who are completing their education, and we hope and expect to use pretty much most of the 45 minutes because it's such an important topic for you all. So as most of you know, many who are fortunate and able to afford the U.S. education would love the opportunity to come here and study as students generally on F1 status, though we do have some J1 for you know exchange visitors. Um, And so today we're going to provide you the overview of the F-1 status-related issues primarily, um, because as you know visa is when you apply at the consulate abroad as opposed to the status issues, and we will focus a lot on the limited employment options available for F-1 students to take advantage of. So quickly, very briefly, the F-1 program overview, right? as most of you may have heard or aware, or maybe not, the entire F1 process is actually managed, not by USCIS as most people think, though you do apply for your change of status with the USCIS, it's by guess who? The Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Go figure, why would an enforcement agency that's responsible for deporting you and it's responsible for deporting students. And I think part of it is the history because of 9-11, the September 11th issues that got this whole thing started. And a lot of the, unfortunately, the 9-11 hijackers were students, many of them. And so they wanted ICE to be the primary agency in charge of that agency. And it's mo- mo- monitored under what's called the SEVP. You can see there's lots of acronyms in immigration law, the Student and Exchange Visitor Program. And then it's monitored using, guess what, another acronym, the SEVIS the Student and Exchange Visitor Information System. The SEVIS record is entirely c- controlled by the DSO, also known as the designated school official or of the International Student Advisor. And it is very important that the student continues to stay in touch, maintaining ongoing relationship, communication with the students, uh, with the DSO in the particular program. And talking about DSOs, I always like to mention that our own Anna Stepanova was a DSO at a major university in the United States in her former life before she became this brilliant immigration lawyer. Um, So what is F1 visa, right? F1 of course requires full-time enrollment in an academic program at a SEVP certified school institution including English language programs. It is most commonly used by most people from abroad for higher education because there's a better chance you'll get scholarships and you know, tuition reimbursement, etc. the higher the education. But believe it or not, and it's very not, not very often used by most immigrants, students can use the F1 visa to attend a private K through 12 education. Not meant or available for public institutions, public schools. Um, from K through the eighth grade through middle school, and it can only be used for 12 months of public high school, but the student now is required to pay the cost of that attendance, which obviously sometimes can be more expensive than a private school, which is why most people don't get involved. And I think the few people who are on like B1, B2, tend to just attend schools because they're required under uh, state law, that children have to be educated in the US, and even those who are obviously out of status are allowed to enroll in public schools uh, because that's the process of how it's done, because you have state laws separate from federal immigration law. So, enough of that. Let me invite Anna to talk and describe a little bit about the F1 students, you know, the non immigrant
1: issues and other issues pertaining to F1 status. Anna, take it away. Thank you, Sheila, for such a great introduction. Um, so I'm going to talk briefly about the core requirements for the F-1 visa category, status or visa. As Sheila just mentioned, uh, there are two ways to get into F-1 status. One is by applying for an F-1 visa abroad at a U.S. consulate abroad, and the other one is by applying for change of status from within the U.S. So... There are two major requirements for um, eligibility. One is to show non-immigrant intent. So when someone, for example, applies for a visa to consulate abroad, um, a a prospective student is required to establish ties to their home country. However, uh, it is uh, something that the consular officers are being reminded of uh, in the foreign affairs manual that usually f1 visa applicants are very young so they shouldn't expect extremely strong uh, a showing of extremely strong ties to their home country but some um, ties need to be established uh, also it's not just um you know that they uh, have to show that they will return to their home country after the completion of their study but that their immediate intent is to complete their study. People are allowed to change their mind later, as um, many of you know that people come here, students, and then change to H-1B. It's permitted, but uh, a student just applying for their initial F-1 visa is not, um, under the law, is not allowed to want to change their status later before they even come here in F-1 status. And the other core requirement is to show financial ability. Um, you know, students participate in a four-year program, a sometimes six-year program. So do they really need to show that they have enough money to last them uh, during, uh, for the duration of the entire program? No. They have to show that they have enough money to pay for the first-year tuition and living expenses, fees and books and all of the other uh, expenses But they also have to show that it's more likely than not that they will continue to have financial ability to last them through the entire program. And it could be um, a letter from the parent's employer, for example, saying how much money the uh, parent or parents are making um, on their job. So uh, that would also be uh, for the future and that may be sufficient. Also, uh, For those people who are applying for change of status from within the U.S., uh, there is something that's very unique to this particular type of change of status application. People are allowed to have up to 30 days of gap in their status between the uh, status that they are changing from to the requested start date of their F-1 program as noted on their Form I-20. They still have to apply timely, but their status may actually end uh, before the program starts, but not uh, more than 30 days in advance. So these are the major highlights of applying for a visa and changing status in the U.S. Thank you so much, Anna, for that very helpful background and
0: information on various issues the next big issue of course is maintenance of student status or f1 status um because that's critical because you can't get to change it approve it etc if you're not maintaining your non-immigrant status so i'm going to invite joanna to discuss those uh, f1 maintenance of f1
2: status related issues yeah absolutely thank you sheila um Yeah, as you said, you know, once you have F1 status, you want to make sure that you're continuing to maintain it. And as Sheila mentioned earlier, one of the most important relationships for an F1 student is keeping in touch with their DSO because their DSO does have control over their CETIS record, and the DSO is going to make the determination as to whether a student has violated their F1 status. Generally, in order to continue to maintain the F1 status, a student must be making normal progress in their program of study. Um, they must be enrolled full time unless there's an exception and there has been a reduced course load. One thing to keep in mind is that normal progress is exactly that. Um, it doesn't require that the student, you know, get A's in every class. Uh, sometimes students may even have issues where they're put on academic probation. and As long as they're able to continue to enroll and continue to make progress in their program, that in of itself is not necessarily a violation of status. So just being making sure that they're otherwise continuing their program is is key. There are also, as uh, Sheila alluded to in the beginning of this, is there's a lot more reporting requirements for students in F1. And that, again, ties back to keeping your DSO updated. Um, For instance, if a student changes their address during their program, they have to notify their DSO within 21 days so that their DSO can update their CDIS record. Um, The other important aspect is when a student is on F-1, they are able to travel abroad, but they do need permission from their DSO, and they do need an I-20 that authorizes them for travel in order to travel. Um, So that's another kind of distinct situation for F-1 students. Um, More importantly, though, when they are abroad, a student should never be abroad for more than five months. Uh, With the exception of maybe engaging in a study abroad program, if a student is abroad or away from their program of studies for more than five months that could interrupt their cvis record now there were some exceptions during covid so some of that changed but generally in the normal course of things a student should not be abroad for more than five months because their cvis record um could be terminated now the like i mentioned with reduced course load i think that's probably one of the most common issues we see is where you know, students in F1 status are, in certain circumstances, able to take a reduced course load if they're having, you know, medical issues or something else. They just need to discuss this and get prior approval from their DSO before just enrolling in less than full-time courses. Um, sometimes students won't get the permission first, and that becomes a problem for them, and their student status record is terminated. Um, if a student falls out of status, they can speak to their DSO and an uh, immigration attorney to find ways in which they can either file for reinstatement to get back into F1, or in some circumstances they may have to travel abroad. Um, most importantly, and this is kind of key, is that a, a student in F1 should not be engaged in employment unless that's authorized under their program. And you know, we can talk about there are there are certain options. There's actually several options for students with to get employment authorization but they can't engage employment outside of the scope of that authorization
0: thank you Joanna and yes and one of the
2: topics that Joanna just touched upon was the
0: reinstatement issue and I know many of you contact us at Multi law firm because F1 reinstatement is complex it's difficult it's not run-of-the-mill you know it's like oh I missed it I slipped I forgot about it I didn't realize generally those are not great excuses as we have seen based on the USCIS determination but we could have a whole one-hour discussion just on F1 reinstatement and what the rules are and how the government, you know, deals with it or those types of situations. So talking about F1 employment options, so, you know, there's on-campus, there's three main kinds, right? There's on-campus employment, there's curricular practical training, CPT, and OPT. There's pre-completion OPT and post-completion OPT, and um, both... Anna and Joanna are going to discuss those in detail, but one thing that I just want to very briefly touch upon because sometimes it can be relevant to students from certain parts of the country or the world. When a student experiences severe economic hardship, there are special student relief programs uh, for students from certain countries as well as uh, certain employment sponsored that is sponsored by international organizations. And even though it's rare, it's the, this, the details are outside the scope of our discussion today, I thought it would be helpful because our focus today is employment and employment authorization for students. One is the employment authorized because, authorization because of severe economic hardship. So for example, an F-1 student, um, and they have said it's other than a Mexican or Canadian border commuter student who experiences severe unforeseen economic necessity may apply to the USCIS for off-campus work authorization. Part-time off-campus is eligible after one year of full-time study. Uh, A lot, again, you don't want hundreds of thousands of students saying, oh, here's an exception, I can show what happened, suddenly unexpected circumstances, but it hopefully is legitimate and proper. Second is the special student relief program providing employment based on the on-campus and economic hardship employment categories. It's available currently for students, for example, from Afghanistan, Myanmar slash Burma, Cameroon, Ethiopia, Somalia, Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan, Syria, Ukraine, Venezuela, and Yemen. And the last one that I'm going to touch upon, again, it doesn't impact the majority of you, but if it does, you'll know there's this option, certain employment sponsored by international organizations. We can give you the quote of the CFR, but I don't think we want to. But basically, F1 students can apply for an employment authorization document or EAD to be able to work in an internship with a recognized international organization within the meaning of the International Organization Immunities Act. There's no waiting period. And again, because the United States is the headquarters, for example, of many of the international organizations like the United Nations, like the you know, international monetary, like several financial, international, World Bank, et cetera, there's several opportunities for students to take advantage of it. So let's jump to what majority of you are really
1: interested in, which is off-campus, camp, on on-campus employment. Um, Anna? Uh, yes, Sheila, absolutely. So on-campus employment, it's a very convenient way, which is called incident to status for a student to engage in employment because uh, incident to status really means that there's absolutely no authorization required. So the student doesn't need to apply to the government, to USCIS, to get this authorization. They don't even need to apply for their DSO, designated school official. It's incident to status, just what it sounds like. But they do have to have a social security number. So uh, the student would need to get a letter from the DSO in most cases to go to the Social Security Administration office to apply for the Social Security number to engage in on-campus employment. Just don't forget that, uh, to do that because otherwise the work will still be unauthorized without authorization. Students are permitted to work part-time um, on campus. Uh, all of the school, which they issued their current um, I-20 form, and uh, when the the school is in session. But during the uh, scheduled breaks, like summer break, winter break, spring break, um, they can switch to full-time employment. Most common types of on-campus employment for graduate students, for example, is to work as a research assistant or teaching assistant, R-A-T-A. That's a good way to uh, get experience, to work um, in your academic department, and also make money. And sometimes the school will even reduce full-time full tuition to um, state tuition for somebody to somebody who is working as an RA or TA. So sometimes people are confused about what it means for employment to be on campus. So, on campus or on the school premises, in the words of the regulation, means that work that takes place at your school location, uh, that is on campus, and commercial business, something that uh, services students, like a bookstore or a cafeteria, your Starbucks uh, located on campus is also considered to be eligible for work on for on-campus work as long as the work directly provides services to students. But something that may still be located on campus, like a construction site, um, not directly servicing students until it's completed, would not be eligible for on-campus employment. Sometimes students may work even off-campus, and that would still be considered to be on-campus employment, such as working in a lab or something like a research lab, affiliated with your school. And um, on campus employment must not displace US citizen or lawful permanent residents. Otherwise it's something that would be up for grabs. So don't overlook this very easy employment uh, type uh, that doesn't require any authorization whatsoever. Thank you, Anna. Um, so you can see there's options and so now
0: that we've touched upon the on-campus employment aspect of it, um, Joanna is going to discuss the CPT or the Curricular Practical Training and what are the requirements, integ- you know, the integral part, all of those details that she will touch upon. Joanna?
2: Yes. So Curricular Practical Training, like on-campus employment, it, it, it doesn't require authorization from USCIS, but it does, unlike on-campus employment, it does require authorization from your DSO. Um so CPT, or curricular practical training, commonly known as CPT, it is training that must be integral to part of an established curriculum and directly related to your a student's major area of study. So it must satisfy both. Um, it's, it's, you know it's a little higher standard, It must be integral to the curriculum, not necessarily just related. Um, as far as you know when CPT is initially available, Usually it's not available until a student has completed one full academic year. But there is an exception which exists for graduate students. So master's level or above where a student is able to engage in CPT during their first year of study as long as there is a requirement that there is immediate participation by all students in the program. So maybe the requirement that everyone in that program for their first year needs to complete an internship you know, that would satisfy the exception and a student who was in their first year of their master's degree, for instance, would be able to engage in CPT immediately without having to wait that one full academic year. As far as documentation of kind of showing that something is an established part of the curriculum, the regulation generally just refers to a cooperative agreement in a specific when there's a practicum or a specific um, engagement with the school, but most schools, in our experience, try to use a cooperative agreement for all employers. Um, I will say that there is guidance that does indicate that a letter from an employer kind of detailing what the job opportunity, how it will serve the student's understanding of the curriculum, that can be sufficient, but especially given the increased scrutiny of CPT beginning in the prior administration, most employers and and students would be served to kind of try to get that cooperative agreement from the beginning when they initially apply for CPT, And that is because even though USCIS doesn't necessarily require to be, they're not involved at all in the authorization of the CPT, we're seeing where students are applying for changes of status to H1, for instance. You know, that is when USCIS will start looking, okay, well, let me make sure that this CPT authorization was appropriate Um, and so one of the easiest ways to establish that the training program is integral to the curriculum and directly related to the student's major area of study is for that employer to provide the cooperative agreement with the university and with the DSO to be able to evaluate and then justify their authorization of the CPT Um, but again if there's no formal cooperative agreement a letter from the employer confirming the job opportunity and the training that will be provided would would be at least required. Um, as far as the one thing to keep in mind is that it's it's not available um, to student English students doing an English language program other than a college, university conservatory are they're ineligible for CPT. Um, one other thing that we're seeing a lot of as far as the 12 months of full time CPT, that will impact the student's ability to get OPT upon graduation. So if a student completes 12 months or more of of, of CPT, they would not be eligible for OPT upon graduation, but OPT should not impact the student's ability to get CPT. And we saw kind of a differing interpretation of that requirement under the prior administration, but fortunately we haven't seen that come up as as an issue as of late. Um, so the other thing to keep in mind is that there's no clear limit on the amount of hours a student can work in CPT. Usually, as Anna mentioned, you know, with on-campus employment during the, the year, it should be limited to part-time. But because CPT is considered part of the academic program, part of getting that curriculum training, it's there's no limit to the amount of hours that student can engage in on CPT.
0: So just to be clear, you're saying if there's months
2: of full-time
0: CPT, then the student has some um, restrictions on being able to take advantage of the OPT, and it could mean, for example, no OPT, or partial OPT,
2: or... It's, it's, no. Yes, yeah, no OPT. So, um, we'll get into kind of the impact of pre-completion OPT on the post-completion OPT, but in this instance, if a student uses 12 months or more of full-time CPT, and again, it's full-time, so part-time is not going to have the same impact. They're ineligible for any OPT upon graduation.
0: Uh, Okay, so we're going to touch upon OPT or optional practical training. I think many of you, whether you're individual students who are graduating or employers, you're much more familiar with the OPT angles. It's a common form of employment, authorization for F1 students, It's recommended by the student's DSO slash International Student Advisor. It requires the student to file the 765, the application for the employment authorization document uh, with the USCIS to receive that EAD. So the OPT employment must be related to the program of study. It has to be directly, so you have to show the connection. It's only available once the student has completed Again, the similar requirement, the one year of academic study, It is is then limited to a maximum of 12 months per academic level. So if you've done a bachelor's degree in the US, you could get 12 months, master's degree, 12 months, PhD, 12 months. If you do a second master's or a third master's, if you've used it up once, you don't get it. But if you didn't use it with the first master's, then of course you could use it with the second, because you're given that maximum 12 months, right? Um, and then you can receive only an additional 12 months when you change to the higher education level, as I just explained. So one year of academic study does not, uh, does not need to be in the on F1 status. So there are two types of OPT, right? There's the pre-completion and the post-completion OPT. The pre-completion can be appro- approved for full time when the school is not in session. Again, you heard Anna talk a little bit about that. And then you have a, any period of pre-completion OPT is deducted from the authorized post-completion OPT. So, but if you were part-time, then it's deducted at 50%. Um, so, you know, you can't really double dip in that sense. A grant of the OPT is always use it or lose it. I often have people during consultations ask me, but I used only six months of it, even though I got a year, can I get it back for my second dear masters that I'm doing now and it's now because if you're given 12 months, but you use only three months of OPT, then you're still ineligible for the additional OPT at the same educational level. Um, I guess if you only asked for three months or six months, possibly, then we could do that um, and then try to do it, but they don't usually because it's considered an OPT, um, you know, optional practical training. And during post-completion OPT, a student is limited to 90 days of unemployment during your first year, the 12 months of F1 OPT. And I know we all have heard, unfortunately, of cases where employers take advantage, your victims, you don't know they're not a legit company because a friend said, well, I got this job, let's sign up. And so many of you are seeing RFEs, denials and problems by having signed up with companies that were later determined to not be legitimate or bona fide employers uh, for you that could impact pretty much, you know, your F1, your H1B, your visa, your travel, et cetera. Unpaid training is allowed during the first year of OPT. Of course, the uh, government does not expect any employer or employee to violate any kinds of labor employment laws regarding minimum wage, et cetera. But in addition, self-employment, multiple employers, contracting is allowed. So there's lots more flexibility during your first 12 months of the F1 OPT. Um, any changes in your employment need to be reported within 10 days to the DSL, but students can apply for OPT up to 90 days before the end of their study program and within 60 days after the program end date. So when people do it and file it and send the wrong check or whatever, if it's outside of that window, you're out of luck, right? So you must submit your OPT application within 30 days of the DSO's recommendation for OPT and SEVIS. So if you take a little longer to send it, you're past the 30 days, USCIS now can deny it, causing grave hardship if you have crossed that window 30 days before and 60 days after. Again, lots of little nuances. Speak to your DSO, talk to a lawyer, make sure you do it right so you don't mess it up because these are big, big things in your life that can have devastating consequences for you as a student, and especially if you need that work for a variety of reasons, including resume building, et cetera. With that, I'm going to invite Anna to jump into and talk about the STEM extension for OPT because many of the people, our employers and employees, are in the STEM subjects and very eager to see if they can get that
1: additional two years. Anna. Sure, um, Sheila. So, STEM OPT is a 24 month extension for students who. Obtained a bachelor's, master's, or Ph.D. in science, technology, engineering, or math fields. It it is it doesn't um, apply to people or students with an associate degree, uh, but only starting from bachelor's. How do you know that your degree is designated for STEM OPT? It's not enough to just um, judged by the sound of what, you, what your program was called, you have to verify it based on the uh, CIP code that's noted in CDIS and on the student's I-20 form or SIP code as DSOs like to refer to it. The uh, agency in charge of uh, CDIS, ICE, or SCVP, its sub-agency, Updates the list of STEM designated degrees based on the SIP code. The last um, update was done in 2020, and from time to time the agency goes back and usually they add degrees, which is a good, which is good news uh, for students and the employers. And sometimes when the agency adds degrees to the list or the designation to the list, it uh, Sometimes it may happen that the student graduated with a degree that was not designated as a STEM degree. They went ahead and they did a one year of OPT. Now their degree is designated after they graduated. Can they apply for STEM? Yes, they can. So you need to check the uh, designation for your degree at the time that you have to apply, okay? And you can apply Um, 90 days prior to the uh, expiration of the first year uh, OPT. But unlike the first year OPT, the uh, end date, the window ends um, at the time that your EAD uh, expires. So USDS must receive the STEM OPT application and accept it for processing as of the end date of the first year OPT. What do you need to apply? So a very important requirement for STEM OPT is to fill out uh, Form I-983 with the prospective employer. If during the first year OPT, uh, the employment was not uh, based on a specific employment offer, then on STEM OPT, it, it changes. It, it becomes more restrictive. So the employer is the one who must adhere to specific attestations and sign off on them. And they use the form uh, I-983 for that. So what do they need to uh, specify on the form? They need to lay out the uh, training plan and explain how it will enhance the student's academic experience. They also need to show that they have sufficient resources and trained personnel available to provide appropriate training. So in other words, um, they would have to show that they have somebody in a position to provide mentorship, training, and supervision um, who is the employee uh, of the uh, uh, company that is sponsoring the uh, STEM OPT extension. It cannot be delegated. It cannot be assigned, for example, to an M client of the employer. So it has to be uh, an employee who is not a student but works for the company that is the employer filling out the form. Also, the employer would attest to having um, available uh, position and, which will not replace a full or part-time uh, temporary or permanent U.S. workers. And it also creates the opportunity for student to attain um, his or her training objectives. So this is the form that kind of starts the process of applying. Um, Once the form is signed, completed by the employer and signed, the student must forward it to the DSO so that they can obtain an I-20 with the recommendation from the DSO to apply for STEM OPT. The I-983 does not get to USCIS, but the DSO uses it to input the information from the form into the student this record and then make a recommendation, generate the form uh, and uh, the I-20 form, which is the uh, basis for the application that is done on the form I-765. And um, USCIS sometimes asks for a copy of it. So DSOs will keep the I-983 on file at the school for three years, and they must make it available to USCIS or ICE upon request. And sometimes USCIS, as I said, would issue a request for evidence, or ICE would come with a site visit, and they would want to look at the form, so it must be available, and the DSOs should be aware of it. Um, Also, unlike the first-year OBT. Uh, the STEM-OPT employer must pay certain wages. The work cannot be voluntary and it may not be unpaid. Also, the compensation must be at a specific level. Not as um, it, it, This requirement is not as strict as what you are probably more familiar with, the wage requirement for H-1B, for example. But uh, the employers must pay um, the salary to STEM OPT workers that is uh, same or similar to what they pay uh, uh, to other workers who are similarly situated. And it could be a, a training position, not necessarily um, a, a regular position. Thank you, Anna. So as you can see, I know we're almost
0: at 40 minutes and we have to, I guess, how to wrap up in the next five minutes with everything. We're kind of running a little bit slower than we had expected. So as you can see, there's lots of reporting requirements for employers and employees. And so I'm going to ask, invite uh, Joanna to talk a little bit about if you're an employer or an employee, what are your requirements to touch upon it briefly. I know we have not a whole lot of time. So either we speak fast or we exceed the time by a few minutes, hopefully not a whole lot because this is such an important topic and we figured that this was important to explain a little in detail, so Joanna, take it away.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So again, you know, F1 students, lots of reporting requirements. On, under the STEM OPT, it's a bit different than the initial year of OPT. Um, a student, every six months, has to report a, do a six-month validation requirement, where they update their DSO to make sure either everything has stayed the same as far as their residential, their employment information, or they update them as to what has changed. Um, They also, as Anna mentioned, the 983, the point of the 983 is a training plan. A student has to complete an annual self-evaluation of their training and are they meeting those requirements detailed in the 983. Um, Students and employers, again, must also report any changes to employment status as as far as termination or if they resign. And then most importantly, um, Something to keep in mind is that if there are material changes to the 983, so if there's been a change in work site or a significant change in the training plan or, or job duties, then the 983 must be updated to pro- and provided to the DSO to document those material changes. Um, and again, employers have to report any terminations within five businesses. So employers should report that um, and make sure that's documented in the student see Um The other thing to keep in mind is that uh, STEM OPT, there's a, a limit of only getting two extensions in a lifetime. So um, you can get one maybe, for instance, at a master's degree or and then a PhD or one at a bachelor's and one at a master's. Importantly, the second STEM extension must be obtained through a higher education. Um, you can also rely on a prior STEM degree and you know, that it's been earned within the last 10 years, you can use the STEM OPT, for instance, if you get a bachelor's in computer science, and then you move on and you get maybe an MBA that doesn't qualify for a STEM extension, as long as you still have that initial OPT time, and I know we discussed the use it or lose it, you could still get a STEM extension after the bachelor, after, I'm sorry, the MBA, relying on that computer science degree, assuming two things. One, the computer science degree was earned in the last 10 years, and two, the student had some OPT initial OPT available to them at the completion of the non-qualifying degree.
0: Great, thank you so much, Joanna. So a question that we're often asked, of course, is travel. Travel during OPT and STEM OPT, am I allowed? You know, my sister or my family member is getting married. There's a medical emergency. All of the things when life happens to all of us. Um, in general, most people, whether it's a DSO or attorney people do not recommend travel because there's a risk of possible visa denial when you're abroad, you know, trying to reenter the U.S. You work, let's say, with a suspicious company that they somehow the USCIS seems to renew the status in here in the U.S., but it's caught when you're traveling or applying for a visa or CBP figures it out when you enter the country. Um, so during STEM OPT extension and OPT EAD, um, the, uh, you know... If you're waiting, travel while you're waiting for the OPT or STEM OPT extension approval, as we said, is not recommended, but during STEM OPT extension, OPT EAD is extended for 180 days, right? So for example, if you travel during your OPT, uh, keep in mind that when you're outside, you can't say, oh, that doesn't count because I was outside the United States, I'm not subject to US law, that's true, (laughs) but not subject to US law. Except for this time limit that the USCIS and I seem to have somehow figured out that the total unemployment time of what Joanna, I think, explained earlier, that 90 days plus the 60 days is the maximum you can uh, take, keep even when you're abroad. And then you have travel, if you do it during CAP GAP, uh, your F1 is over, you travel, your H1 is pending. If you travel while the H-1 is pending, then you know that it's deemed abandoned, the change of status upon departing the U.S., so you definitely don't want to try and travel unless your goal is, and you get into details and nuances with that, to extend your F-1 status so you get an, a, a, what they call a consular processing slash notification approval, get that, you'll get the denial of your change of status, and then you can use that rest of your eight months or whatever of your CP- OPT and then try to get, but then you'll still be required to travel to start your H-1B status. So again, we're getting into details. I know we're running short on time. The last issue that we're going to wrap up with is changing to H-1B-related issues. And I'm going to invite, because there's so little time, both Anna and Joanna just to sort of you know, quickly wrap it up. Of course.
1: So one thing to keep in mind for CAP-GAP is that it's, this benefit is automatic. You don't need to apply specifically for CAP-GAP. When do you get it uh, depends on a number of factors. So first, um, an employer must file uh, the H-1B petition subject to the CAP, while the employee is still in valid F1 status, and they must request, of course, the October 1st start date, uh, which all of the petitions filed uh, ahead of the uh, start of the fiscal year um, due request. And the employee must be in the U.S., and uh, the cap gap will start when the employee finishes the program of study. So sometimes people think that cap gap is only for students who are working, but that's not um, necessarily the case. If uh, the student is working on OPT or STEM OPT when the petition is filed, they can continue working through the end of the CAP-GAP period, which is September 30th. But if the student is in their grace period, for example, they're still eligible for the CAP-GAP benefit. Um, although they will not be able or continue to work. So, but their status will um, will be uh, automatically extended upon the filing of the H-1B petition.
0: Thank you, Ana. Let's jump to Joanna and wrap it up because I know we're just past 45 minutes.
2: Just wanted to add as far as um, the only thing to keep in mind with CAP-GAP is that if the H-1B is denied or withdrawn prior to October 1st, that that CAP-GAP employment authorization or CAP-GAP extension will terminate. Um, and you would, if it's prior to October 1st, you would get your 60-day departure period.
0: Thank you so much, Joanna. Thank you, Anna. And I know because we're running short on time, but we wanna thank each and every one of you today for participating. Obviously, if you have any questions, issues, problems, which we hope you don't for negative, but more for proactively applying to get advice, you know you have the world's best team right here at the murthy Law Firm. And Anna and Joanna and everybody can absolutely guide you, hold your hand, whether you're an individual going through the process seeking reinstatement, wanting to file change of status, H 1B, or you're an employer that wants to support your employee and understand or set up a training and mentoring program or plan or what have you and what are, how to dot the I's, cross the T's. So, on behalf of myself, Sheila Musti, on behalf of Anna Stepanova, Joanna Gavigan, and our entire Musti law firm team, We thank you for joining us today. We want to wish you a happy spring and we look forward to continue to educate and empower you, whether you're an individual, a person in a family, an employer, an employee. Looking forward to taking care of you and enjoy your spring. Thanks a million. Bye-bye. This is a free service. The content is the protected copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services, and more at www.murthy.com.